Welcome to Inside India by UTI International. I'm your host, Ben Haywood. Join me as I embark on an exciting journey through the new and modern India. From the Dabawalas to the Tatas and the Ambanis, let's see what the future may hold for the world's largest democracy. In this series, we feature conversations with business and economic leaders who have lived and breathed the story of India as they tell us their version of what makes this such a compelling and exciting growth opportunity in the 21st century. Stay tuned. The use of credit is ubiquitous in American society, and we have seen explosive growth in consumer credit over the last decade as rates have remained low. However, as credit has been more widely available, it has also resulted in indebted households sinking into trouble, jeopardizing their financial security. Millions of families across America are burdened by this debt, with many spiraling into monetary destruction. The economic well-being of an individual would be considerably improved if they were able to effectively manage their debt and make informed financial decisions. Today, I'm joined by Avi Pacheva, CEO and co-founder of Bright Money, a mission-driven consumer fintech company dedicated to helping everyone reduce their debt burden and build wealth. Bright Money, which was founded in 2019, promises to assist customers to take control of their debt and start developing real wealth by handling all of their data crunching calculations and financial planning on their behalf. Customers allow Bright Money to thoroughly examine their bank and credit card transactions and help them make financial decisions through the use of big data and analytics. Its mission is to help every American double their wealth by enabling better financial decisions powered by data sciences and behavioral design. It is yet another example of the increasingly popular build in India, sell in the Western world business model with more than 95% of their workforce based in India, yet all of their customer base located in the US. Avi spends this episode telling us what it is about India that makes it such a ripe destination for building a 21st century tech business with product that can be exported around the world. I'm Ben Hayward, and you're listening to Inside India. Avi, thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking with me today. It's great to have you on. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm very lucky to have another kind of very promising Indian tech startup founder on the podcast. More on your business in a little bit. But to start with, Avi, if you could just give the listeners and myself the sort of journey so far for you. How have you ended up starting one of India's brightest fintech startups? Absolutely. And appreciate the reference there to being bright. <laughs> so more to be said on that. Yeah. So my own background, I'm an economist and statistician by training. I spent my years of study and research at Oxford and in the LSE at London. My particular area of specialization in the early 2010s was in the world of how can you use modeling and data science to predict the development of character of children. In that time, we called it econometrics, but ultimately the same toolkits, the same skills that have now burgeoned into the field of data science. And so after my academic time, I have spent Many years in data science as part of the advanced analytics practice at McKinsey. I worked across the UK, sometime in the US, Far East Asia, and also several years in India, uh, building up that advanced analytics practice. In that time, I also did a lot of time in strategy consulting with McKinsey. And so it built up my skills in, in the world of strategy operations and organization. Again, working in companies across geographies and including in India. I subsequently entered the world of the Bangalore tech ecosystem and was the vice president of data sciences at 
what was India's first unicorn company in Mobi, uh, founded in the in around 2009 and had a real rock star rise to success as a unicorn. When I joined in Mobi, it was about 1,200 people, and we had a large data sciences team. Uh, during my time there, we incubated and grew what became in Mobi Glance, which is a consumer product served to Southeast Asia and South Asian users of Android phones. And I helped set up and founded the data sciences team there, which has grown enormously to a team of more than 200 people now. And that product is doing very well, which is absolutely excellent. And then I came to Bright. I'd been in India for about four or five years by that point, worked across Mumbai, Delhi, Hyderabad, and then had relocated to Bangalore. And with a co-founding team, which included four people from my time at Inmobi, from the engineering and data sciences, as well as operations world of Inmobi, some stellar individuals, some of the most promising, most exciting people I've worked with in my career, and people from my time at McKinsey, in particular, a colleague of mine who worked, we worked together during the financial crisis at McKinsey in 2008 onwards, who had anchored himself in San Francisco. So that became the core team of founders that made Bright possible three years ago. Awesome. Very long, kind of convoluted journey, working for some excellent organizations. And actually, something that you and I have spoken about pre-podcast was your time at McKinsey. You spent some time with McKinsey in India, is that right? And that team, you talk about that team now has grown kind of exponentially, but they're predominantly Indian, right? There's no longer this culture of lifting people into the team in, in McKinsey in India. It's, I suppose, it's a very long drawn out way of saying that there's so much talent within India. Yes, it's a really important point and very interesting experience. So McKinsey, the old, the world's oldest management consulting firm since the 1920s. It actually took till the 1960s before it started to become global, where from memory, it was 1965, where it opened its first office in London, and then quickly expanded across geographies, Africa, South America, Southeast Asia. Very interesting, in its expansion, often it was people moving from the US or Europe who went out to these offices and set up outposts. And then largely these offices, if you take the Southeast Asian office or the African offices, are a mix of people who've come from and the mothership, so to speak, in the U.S., ultimately it is an American company by culture and DNA, often Europeans, and then some homegrown talent. What was unique about India is when I moved to the India office, an office that was about 450 consultants at all levels, from the analysts up to the senior partner level, I was just one of two people who had come into the office and having, had, having been born abroad and had experience in McKinsey abroad, moving into India as a foreigner at first, what it would have seemed like just two people in that group of 450. So the India office was extremely unique in being a very homegrown office, recruiting from within India, people growing within, people making partner very quickly in the India office. It had its very unique culture within McKinsey and how homegrown it had been. Yeah, I think it's a super interesting point to make. And moving on to present day, you, you took us on your journey there right up to kind of bright money, founding bright money. I suppose now would be a great time to tell us what it is that Bright Money does. If you could give us, I've got here, if you could give us the 60 second pitch on Bright Money, super short, concise, the goals of the business, what you're trying to do and where the idea came from, I suppose. Absolutely. Like no founder wants to fit it into 60 seconds, but we're well trained to do so. So Bright Money, we exist to change how banking, banking happens for consumers, where banking works to deliver outcomes for consumers versus just loading them with new products, whether it be checking products, saving products, credit products. We are software that sits on top of people's banks. We seek to manage their money for them, ultimately for three goals. 
for people who are suffering from short-term credit card debt and other forms of short-term debt to manage their way out of debt for them. Two, to help them improve their credit score with how we use technology and the the systems we apply to that. And three, as we do this, to also build a future for them, ultimately a bright future, in how we build savings and start to make them an investor. We target the lower middle income and middle income communities across right now in the US, but it will be global, who banking today just does not work for. They're loaded with products that work against them. Bright exists to change that and deliver outcomes for them with the power of software and data science. Super, super concise. Well, well refined pitch there, Avi. And I guess with that, then you mentioned there your your core market is obviously the US, but this is a, a product that is built almost entirely in India. So I put you therefore in the what I call inverted commas, Ben Merton school of thought, which is, yes, India's got an amazing um, growth story ahead of it. But actually, right now, if you're building a business right now for the next five, 10 years, you are better off building in India, building your product in India, whether it's, um, and most often it's software kind of related product, or tech related product and selling it into the Western world, which is exactly what you've done. Why? Why are you in Ben Merton's school of thought? Yeah, Ben is a good friend. So we have many debates almost every week about this and, and reinforce each other's perspective. You'll be happy to hear it's called his school of thought for sure. Why this view on India and, and India's future? So in the first instance, there is this huge talent base that has been built in India since really the 1950s in the early years of independence. It's had an emphasis on engineering and technology. It was the founding of the IITs in the 1950s that 60 years later has meant these institutions have built up. They take a large volume of people. They've resulted in a cascade of other institutions. And you've got to the point that there might just be around 10,000 IITs from the core IITs graduating every year, but actually now 3 million engineers graduating across India every year. Now, it might not be that the 3 million are all of equal talent and quality, just like in, in any market. But even at three, 3 million, you might have 10% who are really high quality, who can do high quality engineering work like anywhere else in the world, which is a huge, huge number. Now, that's been the base of the Indian talent story. I think what's been especially exciting, which is more recent in the last 20 years ago, we had the IT services boom. And through that, you created a lot of people with experience in customer services and operations. And the big five or six major IT services companies that hundreds of thousands of employees where I actually spent some of my career as well. Then you had this boom of B2B companies and SaaS companies in the 2010s. They were called B2B in the 2010s. In Mobi, it was a great case in point. Now we call them SaaS companies. In the course of that, again, a set of skills on the business side, on working with foreign customers, on coordinating time zones, making remote work work, having the, all the processes to deal with people who are abroad. You also, and thirdly, more recently, really in just the last five years, you've had this boom in the domestic consumer tech world. Companies like Ola, companies like Flipkart. And what that's meant is in building consumer tech for the domestic market, there are all these complementary skills that have had to grow in the ecosystem, such as you've had to have skills in digital growth. All these companies have largely grown from digital growth, not from conventional advertising on TV and billboards, but advertising on the Facebooks of the world. You've had to have skills in marketing and how you make a consumer brand, all the elements that go into design, marketing strategy, research, copywriting. And you've also had to have skills on the services and operations side have strengthened for the consumer world, as opposed to serving business consumers. All of that has grown immensely in the last five years, especially in the Bangalore ecosystem and also partly in Hyderabad. And that is a new unique base of talent 
for building consumer tech companies from India. So that's the core of my bullishness on the talent base there for a full stack of fully fledged consumer tech company. So it's far more essentially than just playing the cost arbitrage of building in India and, and selling to a market like the US where you can command the higher price than you would in, in India. You're right. There's a big driver in cost arbitrage, especially with engineering. And to quote some figures, you have roughly a one quarter difference. I would say the same quality engineer, like for like in terms of experience, in terms of how effectively they can operate in a remote tech company, roughly a quarter difference in terms of the cost. But then you take the, the services side, you have an arbitrage of typically, by the way, it's almost a seventh or an eighth of the cost. And now on the growth and marketing side, to your point, there is unique talent there that is increasingly able to perform, from my experience, at the same level as in the Valley, in the Bay Area, when it comes to digital growth, management of digital growth, management of marketing, and all the skills involved in marketing, as I mentioned, design, research, strategy, etc. There's talent now that's equal to the talent that you could find on the West Coast, the US. And that also is coming at a big arbitrage, typically also one in five in those sectors. So combination of all of these influences, arbitrage as well as genuinely high quality talent that's now had a decade of experience. Yeah, I can see very quickly why it becomes such an appealing place to set up the manufacturing site and day-to-day management. I believe, what is it, 95% of all your employees are in India, more, right? And increasingly, it's going up because our India team's growing very well. We're actually at around 98% now. We're a company of 200 people. And we're literally, we're four of us in the US with all other elements, business leadership, growth leadership, marketing leadership, of course, engineering and data sciences run fully out of India. And just to dive back into the product, you gave us the 60 second kind of spiel of, of, of what it is you do. So the product sits on top of one's bank account. And like I said, it's aimed, or like you said, sorry, it's aimed at lower to middle income consumers, mostly in, in America, but soon to be kind of globally, who are struggling to get on top of their credit card debt. So you're through kind of clever use of, of data analytics, watching spending patterns, uh, consumption patterns, you believe through technology, you can help these consumers get out of ultimately get out of credit card debt or help them out of credit card debt in a nutshell. Absolutely. We now have over 100,000 consumers. We're paying for the product and we charge $10 a month. We've had stellar growth in the last six months, uh, literally gone 3x in terms of size, in terms of a number of users. To answer your question, it is a mix of technology brought together to solve this problem. But ultimately, there's three superpowers that make it possible. Huge use of data science to segment users and to build a tailored path for them. If you want a tailored path to get out of debt, often you have to pick up the phone, you have to find a counselor or a debt relief service that where a human being has to do this for you. And it's a slow, it's a slow, laborious, expensive process. In our world, it's done with technology. That plan is built, that tailoring is built in the course of a few minutes as someone signs up for the product. The, the second big piece to this is many people will be aware of the boom in what's been called neo-banking, especially in the UK. The UK has been the most dominant or exciting market for this, where you have nearly six or seven major neo-banks now at significant scale. What the neo-banks have sought to do in the UK and the US is replace the checking account with mixed success. Some say they've done well. I have data that increasingly shows that it's around maybe 10% of the US population, a little bit higher in the UK, that's made that switch from a conventional traditional bank to a digital neobank with their primary checking account. But that's been the purpose of the neobank. It was, I'm going to replace a product that's a financial product with this digital product delivered through an app. The difference in Bright is we're not replacing existing products. We do provide those financial products, 
but frankly, we believe they're commoditized. Our aim is the way our software works on top of those products is unique in how it's tailoring and actually driving outcomes for people. We measure ourselves by the outcomes. Has your debt gone down? Credit card debt, student debt, has your credit score gone up? And have you seen an appreciation in your wealth from us organizing your life better, putting aside savings and ultimately making investing for you? And the third thing to say about this is that it is combining with any bank. The mistake is believing it can be all a product or technology and a consumer is is happy with just a product or just an app. That's a mistake. There's a lot of trust that has to be built when you're dealing with your money, of course. It's, It's core to all of our lives. And the combination we have is huge investment on the service and support side. So at any moment, 24-7, chat, email, whatever it might be, voice, we have as much of a force of people supporting to serve people and answer their concerns, fix things for them as we do with the investment on technology. It's that balance that makes it possible. And so, okay, just dialing into some of the numbers here. How much credit card debt is there in the US at the moment, your core market? What is the opportunity set and size here? And then I guess the derivative of the follow-up question I want to ask to that is you obviously sit on top of bank accounts. This is, let's be under no illusion, this is where credit card companies, they make tons of money here. How have they reacted to a product like yours coming in to potentially stop them from making tons of money and late repayments and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. Great questions, which I love answering. So to start top down with the macro, you've got approximately 12 billion in consumer debt in the US, mortgage, auto, student, credit card. Student is around the 2 trillion mark, 12 trillion total, 2 trillion in student. The personal loan type market is around approaching about 1 trillion. And then literal credit card debt that's sitting on credit cards, what we call revolving balances, is 1 trillion. And as of the last two months, because of the context is growing each month at about three to four percent per month. So literally in April, 40 billion in additional debt was added to that one trillion balance, a four percent increase in one month. It's a huge number, that that one trillion, of course. But when you put all of these pieces of debt, student, personal credit together, you're talking about in the range of 3.5 to 4 trillion of debt, which is our addressable market. And to go on in to your second question of you're absolutely spot on. Bank of America in April released their previous quarter earnings, it was very visible. A bank that's making north of $10 billion a quarter, or in that, in that range, half of those earnings were coming from credit spreads. They have fees, they have the yield that they might make, they have the yield or their commissions from investing, but half of all of their revenue was, and that's the only revenue element that was growing, were the credit spreads. So credit's a huge driver of earnings and profit for the big banks, and you're right, they milk it, They do their best to maximize their profit from that area. Would they like what Abright is doing? Absolutely not. Could they have stopped it 10 years ago? They could have because open banking didn't exist and the regulations weren't in place to make open banking possible. They also control their customer in very unique ways. Today, they can't stop it because open banking is in place where we have the same access to data and often we're able to be better with the data because we have multiple sources. Two, customers are happy with working through apps to solve these problems. You don't have to get a salesperson on a phone selling a loan, you can do it through an app and a customer onboards, even refinances, moves their loans to you all in one process through an app. And where they are weak, they have not learned how to use their data in a digital setting effectively. The talent in data science analytics is typically swamped to the tech sector in the US, not to the banks. They don't have a strength in bringing the best you can do with prediction and optimization for people through data. They're very weak there. So to answer the question, not at all worried about the banks. 
they might be able to cut fees like they've done to attack the neobanks. But in what we're doing, it'll take a decade to catch up. And our goal is outcomes in a way that banks, the modern banks and the big banks in the US are not focused on today. Awesome. That's fascinating. And, and, and going a bit more micro here with the kind of top down picture, I guess. So the average bright money customer, I know you're in growth phase, you're trying to acquire the customer at the moment. How much debt will they have? And I guess how long, and I suppose you're still very much in the early stages, the early throes of the business. How long do you anticipate it will take for them to kind of turn their credit lives around and not to make it too dramatic, but in inverted commas? Well, great question. So the average debt when it comes to credit card debt in the US, it's in the range of 7,000 on average for the people who are carrying revolving balances and build up to that, that one trillion figure. It's more than 100 million people who are carrying credit card debt in some form in the US. Now, some people, it's just for a short period of time. Some people, they have the incomes to cover it. So it's for us, we have a target range of about 50 million consumers who are being neglected and actually can't afford the fees. They typically come on when a user joins our platform. They're carrying in the range of three to $7,000 of credit card debt. They're paying an APR. We see this very concretely in our figures of on average today, 24% for that three to $5,000. And you, you do the maths on that, and you're literally talking about credit card fees of anywhere from $500 up to $1,500 per year. So $1 to $200 per month. Our goal is to get that $1 to $200 down as fast as possible. To answer your question in terms of impact, it's not necessarily about saying you have to wipe out the credit card debt. Actually, even just halving it means the cash flows of the person materially change because that $1 to $200 cost per month halves to a more manageable, say, $50 per month. Huge different in someone's life if you can do that in the course of a year and you've created that $100, $150 of new cash every month. So that's the change we want to make. And it, it's not about wiping out debt because it's, debt is sometimes well-placed and needed and it's a natural part of a healthy economy. It's about getting it to a manageable level and creating more free cash flow for people so they get out of debt or it becomes more manageable quicker. They start saving and building for a future quicker. Got you. Being an Indie podcast, I want to kind of anchor it back to the sort of the India angle. But, uh, you know, this is, of course, a fundamental part of your business is, is, you know, your product and where you sell it. But you've gone through a few rounds of, of fundraising, mostly from kind of VCs, PE, a couple of things here. How's that experience been for you? And I guess then to contextualize that within the India piece, how do you pitch the India like we build the product in India? And how's that received by the VCs and, and PE firms? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been through three rounds of funding, uh, which, which are all public. And we, we had a strong Series A roughly a year ago, which was actually announced in September. So as a company, we've been able to raise now more than $30 million. That money, that raising has actually happened across three geographies. There's been raising that's happened from the VC ecosystem and angel ecosystem in India, in particular Bangalore. There's been raising that's happened from London, a couple of funds based in London who have a global outlook, both for the U.S. and towards Asia and India. And there's been funds and angels who've invested from the U.S. So we've truly taken the advantage of a global venture capital market, which if you even rewind 10 years ago, when I was reflecting on how Inmobi started its journey of raising, Inmobi had to just raise from the Bay Area in the early days, because that was like the only source of venture capital that could make a decision quickly and make a bet as big as a bet that Inmobi was. Fast forward now just 10 years, you can almost raise from any quarter of the world where if you're building tech and you can explain the market story well, you can find an investor that backs that and wants to invest in tech 
with a global story in any of these financial centers of the world. So our strategy has been to raise across the world. Now, to your point of how do we pitch the India story and how does that work? When we got started three years ago with some of our leading investors, I remember in the early conversations, we said to them, like, we are making one big thesis bet, which is we're starting to see the beginning of the world where, at the beginning of this trend, where consumer technology can be built fully remotely from the market it's being built for. Now, conventional thinking was when it comes to consumer technology, you really had to be in the weeds of the market. You had to have a really good intuition and sense of the market. And so your core teams all had to be really anchored in the market, including your engineering team for the fast cycle feedback, et cetera. And three years ago, when we were sitting with the first set of VCs that backed us, we said, our bold bet is we can now do this type of building with an, an almost entire team. At that stage, you were predicting 95%. Today, it's 98%. Completely remote and serving a market far, far away. Three years ago, I think it was an extremely novel thesis. I remember the, the first fund that backed us said, you're the first company in our portfolio. And it's a huge fund that has 200 companies. So the first that we're going to back to do this. Now I'm seeing more and more bright shoots, green shoots in the India ecosystem of companies doing similar. Consumer tech built from India with almost 100% of the team anchored in India. That trend, I believe, is just starting. And in the course of the next 10 years, we're going to see a consumer tech industry boom from India, just as we've seen IT services 20 years ago, B2B 10 years ago. The next decade, consumer tech built from India, the US market, the European market, even the South American, the African market, with huge sections of the team, not just technology, being able to be anchored in India. Yeah, fascinating. And, and I guess, I mean, case in point, the last two years, how, how much money has flown into, into Bangalore from these global financial centers? not just into consumer tech that's exported out of India into all corners of the the kind of startup scene in India, but it definitely very, very buoyant. And that kind of brings me on to the next question I had quite nicely, which is you split your time between the, the offices in Bangalore and also in uh, Silicon Valley. And I guess it is a little bit of a follow-up question from the last one. You know, what is the perception of Bangalore and India from Silicon Valley? Are they getting worried about the amount of unicorns that are getting built out of India? And I know there's a vast gulf in difference between value created out of Silicon Valley and value created out of Bangalore. But what's the kind of general appetite? I know there's a lot of synergies between the two cities. Yeah, it's a, I think it's an important question and something that I try to judge, get a sense of in all my conversations in both ecosystems. I'll take you back to a little bit of a parallel. In the early 2000s, I was spending time in China and studying in China in Actually, tier two cities in China, a city called Yantai, which is in the northeast of China. And I was one of the few foreigners in that city. It had many opportunities to talk to locals from all parts of society. And I'd ask them, what is your perception of India, and in particular, the boom in IT services in India? Is it exciting or is it a threat? And literally, universally, the answer was, we see India as a threat to China. If India grows in one way, that's limiting China's potential a real sense of adversity, a real sense of threat in the core population. Now, I'm not saying that's universal, but that's broadly the sentiment. Very different in the Bay Area. It couldn't be more different in the outlook. In the Bay Area, Bangalore is seen almost like a brother city or a sister city, like a bastion of the same Bay Area principles and real support to what's happening in the Bay Area. And that's, I think, for four reasons. One, LinkedIn published a piece about four years ago where they said, which cities have the strongest connectivity with the Bay Area, with Silicon Valley. And Bangalore ranked fourth 
in that list. Hyderabad, fifth. The other three cities were Seattle, New York, and Austin, or the cities in Texas, Austin, Houston. So just three cities in the U.S., the fourth, Bangalore, the fifth, Hyderabad. How was that measured? The connectivity between those two cities of, of people moving back and forth. So that's one factor. That connectivity of people going back and forth is very high and, and taking off. Two, you have people who've moved from India and South India, especially, who've actually now reached very high leadership positions in the Bay Area. And there's a sense where Indians and people who've migrated from India done very well, are very capable as technology leaders. That's to strengthen the trust that the bonding when you've got people in leadership positions, you see it across the board, VC positions, emerging startups, or the big tech players, that the names that we're all familiar with. The third thing is, what's very exciting is that digital connectivity is so strong, enabling the flow of ideas. So what I can find is there's this emergence of Web3 and a lot of interesting debates on Web3. Whole different topic, worth probably three podcasts if you're ever interested, Ben, but not to get distracted by that. What I'm seeing is you can go from having a conversation on what's happening at the cutting edge of Web3 and in particular decentralized finance in one morning in, in SF and overnight or after the, the long 20-hour journey to Bangalore, I get to Bangalore and have dinner with a VC in Bangalore. And the same themes and ideas, there's full awareness in Bangalore of what's happening. It's at the same frontier of ideas in the world of Web3, crypto, decentralized finance. That flow of ideas is enormous. And the last thing to mention is, you were referring to this, the flow of capital. Ultimately, the funds and the VC ecosystem in, in Bangalore nearing 60 or even more than 60 well-established VCs. That source of funds is coming from the Bay and from funds increasingly in New York and, and more conventional sources of finance. So that connectivity of funds is, is also strengthening the connection between the same ecosystems, which what it means is that, just to put it very specifically, when you're talking to a growth fund, a company at our stage talking to VCs about growth funds, the partners you're talking to in Bangalore of the major big VC names that we're familiar with, those partners are at an equal level in the decision-making as the partners you have in the Bay Area. And that decision for growth coming from one growth fund, in many cases, between India, the U.S., other parts of the world, is happening almost at a global level with the partners now in India at the same table at the same level as the partners in the Bay Area. That strength of connectivity, evaluating options together. Yeah. And I think it's going to be a trend that only heads in one direction. It's only the bond between the two is going to get stronger, especially as the U.S. seeks to kind of very obviously decouple from places like China and look for kind of alternative sources of growth. And that's certainly something we're seeing in our business as well. So yeah, we'll look, we could go on and talk about this all day. Unfortunately, we don't have all day. And with half an hour on the time, I will extend to you the question that I ask all of the guests that come on the podcast, which is, and again, fascinated to hear your answer on this, given you know your global perspective, as well as your upbringing, which is, what one thing would you like my listeners to think differently about India? What myth would you bust? And we have all kinds of myths on here. India is not the land of call centers and cows don't roam the streets, you know, as freely as people think and all of that stuff. What one thing that you might hear, whether it's in San Francisco or London or wherever, that you think, actually, no, that's just not true? Yes, I'll do it in two quick parts. The first is India is not just a base of talent for low-end engineering. It had that reputation for 15 years, maybe 20 years now. The depth of talent across all areas of skills, especially in the consumer economy, like I've said, in marketing and everything it takes to build a consumer company, there is talent across the full set of skills to do that, including in the design world. 
and that talent is growing, it's picking up to, I imagine the next 10 years, those pools of talent in India are able to get the same quality level that you get with Indian engineering today or Indian data science. As that, that revolution is underway, it's going to happen where all areas of knowledge, talent, or high skill talent can be sourced in India. And the second part to your question, which I'd like to add, is in the early 2000s, when we saw China, it had phenomenal export-driven growth through the 90s, and, it, and the world was all about made in China. There was this model of export-driven growth is the answer to fast growth. And the thought was, China has done it, but it wasn't clear that India could do it. It wasn't clear that India could have real export-driven growth that makes a material difference to its headline growth rate. It was always, and it, quite disparagingly, there was this term used, the Hindu rate of growth, <laughs> a very disparaging term that suggested growth in India was always going to be in this 2 to 3% driven by just the churn of domestic consumption. The change is India can absolutely have very high export-driven growth. It might not be in manufacturing in the same way, but your headline growth figure can reach, and we're already seeing this in the projections this year. The Economist published it last week, a headline growth figure of up to 7 8% near to what China had at the 10 11% range. And that export is going to have a big part to do with that. Today, it's IT services and uh, pharmacology, but other sectors building from this talent base equally have a future in the services high-end technology world. So I fully expect within 10 years, we're going to see India as an export hub for high-end technology, high-end services in a way that couldn't be imagined at the scale that couldn't be imagined 15 years ago. Absolutely. $200 billion worth of PLI's production-linked uh, incentive schemes to be rolled out by the Modi government in the years to come. Lowest corporate tax rate in Asia. It's coming. You would expect me to say that, but I, the evidence is there. And the Economist article that you referred to is well worth a read for those that are interested. Well, Avi, thank you so much for coming on the, on the podcast. Fascinating journey that you are embarking on just at the start of it, but really exciting growth phase of your company ahead. I'm really look forward to kind of watching that in the months and years to come. Absolutely. Thanks for the wishes and lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to Inside India with me, Ben Haywood. If you like what you have heard, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or indeed wherever you might listen. Don't forget to leave a review and a rating and tell us about your favorite episode. We will be back with a brand new episode in two weeks time. Until then, stay safe.